The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, Social Security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. We've got uh, a bag of questions, as always. A couple of Social Security questions to start off with, I've been warned by Jim. So I'm sure we're going to be starting there. And then uh, if you've sent in any of your annuity questions, I'm sure we'll try to sprinkle some of those in. This being June, Annuity Awareness Month, National Annuity Awareness Month, so we're giving a little stronger emphasis to annuity questions this uh, this particular month. And our EDO shows, if you've been following those, have been kind of annuity-focused. So um, don't have a lot of other ramp-up here getting ready for Father's Day. Maybe it'll actually have, be a dry day for once. We're living in some kind of uh, jungle-like new weather pattern in Colorado. If you guys in the rest of the country need some water, I know where you can find some, right outside my house. Jim's probably got peas growing to the moon by now. I do. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Retirement IRA Show Q&A edition. Uh, I always smile when a Colorado native, and Chris grew up in Wyoming, so that's, that's close enough to Colorado to be called a Colorado native, whines when we have wet weather. Uh, I'm enjoying this. I really am. How can you enjoy this? Everything is just sopping wet all the time and muggy and sticky and... Oh, my Lord, this is not humid. No, 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 no. I'm going to draw the line there, Mr. No, I just Weiner. checked. It said it was 83%. Oh, that's... No, it's we got dry air. That's, look at the dew point. The dew point is the thing you got to pay attention to. So, yes, there's, quote-unquote, humidity in the air because it's going to rain. But it's the dew point. The dew point is still outrageously low, and it's not sticky. Maybe to you it is, but my goodness, no, 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 no. Lots put of mosquitoes boy, everywhere. Put, put your big boy pants on. Yes, mosquitoes, very much so this year. A lot of mosquitoes. But I'm saving money on, on skin lotion, I will say that. I'm saving money on water, too. I haven't turned on my sprinkler system. Oh, that, too. I, I'm going to make it. I bet I'm going to make it to July 1 without turning on oh, my yeah. sprinklers. I'm going to try just so I can claim that I did it once. Uh, in the future, I can tell my great-grandkids there was once a year 
that I didn't have to turn my sprinkler on until July 1st in Colorado. And, and therein lies the truth, folks. What we're experiencing here is an anomaly, and it won't happen again for a very, very, very long time. Hopefully. So that's, that's why I am enjoying what Coloradoans call a very wet spring. What I would call growing up on the coast of Massachusetts, a rather dry spring. But it, it does rain in the afternoon and we get cloudy days, which is rare. We usually have sun all the time. And yeah, everything is green and growing like crazy. You got to understand out here, folks, the, the native plants are very well adept at living in drought conditions because Colorado is a very, very dry state. So when they get a little bit of, of moisture, they can grow in the springtime <clears throat> before going dormant again in the summer. And they look like they're dead, but they're not. They're just dormant because there's no water. But this year they've gotten so much, the, the native grasses and everything. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger at age 20 with a little bit of steroids. Look what he turned into. And now you've got all these, these plants that are just going hog wild. Uh, my field has never been this high. What worries me the most, have you driven around the county lately on how tall yeah. the wildland grasses are? Yeah. If this doesn't continue and, and segue out into the fall and winter when they die and the chances of fires are hopefully less, I do worry that we could have very bad grassland fires if this turns and dries out. Yeah, uh, because I've never seen these these uh, grass fields all around us this tall. Yeah, um, another that, reason that, we don't want all the water. That, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. This is the reason to to live in a drought area, but it's it's nice from a gardening's perspective, folks. <clears throat> I'm enjoying it, and if Colorado was normally this moist. I don't know if I would have contemplated moving uh, back east of the Mississippi, uh, short of wanting to be closer to Florida, where I hope to spend my winters. Right. But um, you'd be staying, I'm and I'd be it. moving. You, <laughs> where would you? Oh, you would move further south. Somewhere dry. This is crazy. All righty. Well, let's forego with the small talk. Uh, we're going to continue with the National Nudity Awareness Month. We've got a real cute email. I'm not sure if I'll get to it this week, but I promise I will. Uh, a listener sent us a National Nudity Awareness Month e-card, if you will. Uh, probably got sick of me complaining that Chris has yet to send me my National Nudity Awareness Month card or give me my National Nudity Awareness Month gift. I haven't received that yet either. But uh, I liked his email. Some of it was cute. Some of it I disagree with in a very polite manner. And I want to go through his card and, and say what I agree with and say what I don't. I think it'll be a little good talking point. I might do it towards the end of our series. I don't know. But anyways, I do want to acknowledge that listener who sent me my first official National Nudity Awareness Month card. He beat you to it, Chris. He did. That's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you sound you sound all upset. All right, we're going to begin with two questions. It was a genius social... idea. It's much easier than me going and finding <laughs> you a gift that's appropriate for Annuity Awareness Month. So no, expect, I'm sure you could... expect a card coming from me as well. 
an e-gift card? Yeah. Probably not, probably not nearly with the ingenuity and forethought that this person put into his. Surely not, because I'm not going to put any thought or ingenuity into it at all. <laughs> Just to be up front with you. <laughs> all righty. So we're going to continue with Social Security questions. And I actually might bop into a IRA question that I haven't told you about. I might because we received so many questions on this. And I thought, well, maybe I need to nip this in the bud because it has to do with what somebody said on another podcast that I think a lot of people listen to. So I might address that on today's show as well. Uh, I haven't quite decided. But um, we're going to start with two Social Security questions. Because don't forget, folks, we said this before, Social Security is technically a form of an annuity because it provides a lifetime stream of income. So we're going to begin with the Social Security question. Um, let me see if he gives a hint. I think his hint is here. It's it's got to be one of the simplest hints ever. Oh, next perfect. to an email, those are the kind I, I like. The, remember? Yeah, I know you're going to get this one. And we also got an email from a listener. I think it was yesterday. He even admitted. He he said, "I don't want to tell you the state. That would give it away." He said he just recently moved there, and he hasn't been there long enough to learn any of the the trivia. I guess he hadn't heard of Google, but he gave a hint that was like. Oh, my God. Seriously, you want me to read this hint? I don't think anyone's going to get it wrong. But uh, this one, now that I see what I think is his hint, uh, is, is quite simple. If you don't get this, I will be amazed. He lives in the land of Oz. Oh, don't even think. Well, I'm just making sure there isn't... That's it. I don't think there's a he state lives- that's officially called that, but... That's where Dorothy was from, and she's from Kansas, so it's got to be. No, I think Kansas, Kansas is. I think they do they do call, call it, it the land, the land of, Oz? of Oz? Oh, I didn't know that, I, but I think Kansas does says. play a prominent role in in the Wizard of Oz. In the Wizard of Oz. So yeah, I'm okay, going well, with Kansas. He is from Kansas. Yes. We'll call him George from Kansas. All right, he sent us this email way back in April. It says, hello, Jim and Chris. I appreciate your podcast, and I am a new advi- newer advisor. <clears throat> Excuse me, I can't talk today. I appreciate your podcast, and I am a newer advisor, and your knowledge and transparency is incredibly helpful. Thank you. Well, congratulations to the new, and he put in parentheses, ER, newer advisor. Congratulations, and uh, I'm glad you can learn a little bit from listening to us. Uh, He begins, I'm 35 years old, but much like your older listeners, I enjoy listening on my walks, or as Jim calls it, jolks. Remember, folks, I think you should pronounce that jocks, just so you know, because neither jog nor walk is pronounced with an O sound. Yeah, but you spell it J-O-L-K. Yeah, but all kinds of stuff in the English language is pronounced differently than it looks. Plus, it sounds kind of cool. You're going on a jock. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds like you're saying jock, like, you know, a jock, a sports That's guy. why it's good. You're being a jock by going on a jock. Whatever. <laughs> Just, what do you want to call it? A jock with a silent L or a joke, which is how I pronounce it. It is half jogging, half walking. Although I will say my joking now, listeners, because I went yesterday, I do a three and a half mile loop most times. Sometimes I'll go four to four and a half. 
Uh, yesterday, I knew I wanted to do a three and a half mile loop because it looked like it was ready to start raining. Uh, and it did. I ended up doing about half of it in, in the rain, but it was okay. Um, but I'm pleased to say, Chris, I jogged for uh, out of the three and a half miles, uh, three of them. So that was really good. I kept my walking to a limit because the, the little app tracks. And uh, I was impressed. So maybe it was the rain and I just wanted to get out of it as quickly as I could. But I'm up to three miles, which for me, folks, is really good, especially with a back that is better, but still uh, still quite painful in my lower hip area for some bizarre reason. Okay, so this young financial advisor is asking us a question, which is really you a question, Chris, because you are the Social Security expert. He says, I have a client that asked me a Social Security question that I could not answer. I was hoping Chris could help. Here are the facts. The wife is 65 and a half and newly retired and has not filed for Social Security. The husband is 64, still working, and has not filed for Social Security. The husband earns substantially more than the wife throughout their working career. If the wife were to file now, and he asked this, Chris, in April, so she's a little bit older now than 65 and a half, if the wife were to file now, instead of waiting until her full retirement age, and the husband were to pass away prematurely before he ever files, would she be able to collect his full benefit? I know you've answered questions very, very similar to this, but uh, I thought it would be another good one to re review, and I'll hand it over to you. Sounds good. So this, uh, again, every time this comes up, I'm not shocked there's the question because this is a very confusing element. And it's uh, confusing because there's a hard differentiation between spousal benefits, which is something you collect while your spouse is alive, and survivor benefits, sometimes called widow or widower benefits. Um so she's thinking about filing. She's only 65 and a half, which would be before her full retirement age. And um, she would be receiving a reduced benefit compared to what she would receive at her full retirement age. I'll first answer what he didn't ask. If she then went on to claim a spousal benefit under his, uh, the husband's record once he claims, that spousal benefit would also be reduced uh, because she claimed her own early, and that's because of the deeming rule where you're deemed to be filing your own benefit before getting a spousal benefit pay, paid on top of it. And your own benefit portion of that has been reduced by her claiming early. But that's not what he asked. He asked if the husband were to pass away. That then opens the door not to spousal benefits. That opens the door to survivor benefits. Survivor benefits are not affected by your claiming of your own benefit early. Survivor benefits are set and either are reduced, if they are you know, to be reduced, based on the day you file those benefits. So let's say he died rather soon and she was only 65 and a half, maybe died right away. Uh, she had claimed her own benefit and he was only 64 and clearly hadn't made it up to his full retirement age she would be able to collect his full retirement age benefit 
but she would have to wait until she got to her own full retirement age. I'll also make another note, the full retirement age for survivor benefits and the full retirement age for your own benefits can be different, can be up to two years different. I don't want to go down that path because this should be a short question to answer. I don't want to make it too long, but just be aware of that. Uh, So the simple answer to his question is yes, she would have access to his full survivorship benefit, even though she was filing hers early. The only caveat is if he died so young that she was still under her full retirement age and she tried to immediately switch to the survivor benefit, she would be paid slightly less than she otherwise would because she was claiming the survivor benefit early. But she's not too far away from her, uh, the full retirement age benefit for her survivor benefit is no older than 67. So she's really close now. And actually, she was probably born in 1957. So she's probably already the full retirement age um, in in, uh, just like a year. She'll hit that earlier than she hits the full retirement age for her own benefit. So the chances that he passes away before that date is hopefully very, very slim, him being only 64 at this point. Um, But yes, don't worry about her claiming her own and then jeopardizing a future survivor benefit by making it lower. What she would be jeopardizing, which she didn't really ask, but I'm kind of answering it together with this, is the spousal benefit will be also permanently slightly reduced. She's not much younger. She's only, she's 65 and a half. It's not like she's claiming at 62 where she'd have a much more significant early claiming reduction. 65 and a half, it's fairly small. Um, so, But the spousal benefit and her own would be forever reduced. But when she switches to survivor, if the husband predeceases her, that's, a whole, that's like pushing the reset button and she gets brand new claiming age determinations for early claiming or not. And she's close to getting the full retirement age anyway. So... Um, hopefully that helps. I answered a little more than you asked and hopefully that didn't confuse things more than it needed to be. But I wanted to make that distinction because it's the reason why this question usually comes up is people have heard the permanent damage to the spousal benefit by claiming your own early. And they, they mix together spousal and survivor like they're one and the same thing. And they're not, they're two different benefits with different rules. So hopefully that'll, he can pass on to his client and that'll be helpful was that my cue that is your that is your cue excellent and don't worry that you went a little long long time listeners this podcast know you kind of go down those rabbit holes and on and on and on and on and on and you're not quite as pithy as i am and they're used to that so don't worry about it at all i appreciate their compassion they're they're nice people they understand Mm -hmm. how you are they know you're a little crazy you're not calm cool collective like me They, they address that Okay, this person, I think we've had this, I don't think we've had this question, but we've had this hint before. I could pre, I'm, I'm going to say this hint. I think this is a repeat hint, but not, if this is a repeat question as well, please let me know. But I think I've, I've seen this hint before. Uh, they are from the old Hickory, well, they are from the state where Old Hickory lived. And I think we had that hint or a similar hint using Old Hickory before. 
If we or, did, or I not. didn't retain that. The whole, is oh, really? Old Hickory okay. is a person? Old Hickory is a person. I'll, I'll even mm. go a little further. Okay. He is, he is a president on the $20 bill. Oh, well, I know the $20 bill because when I was a child, my dad made me memorize the presidents on all the different currency. Uh, that would be Andrew Jackson. That is correct. On the $20 bill. Jackson, Jackson was known as Old Hickory. And this gentleman lives in a state where <laughs> I'm Old not sure Hickory that leads me to lived. the answer to the question, though, because <laughs> then I'd have to know where Andrew Jackson was from. And I have to admit, I do not know. Um, then I'll go Virginia. one more further with the hint. Well, no, give me, I'll give you one oh, more hint. Okay. And for those, okay. for those folks who don't know history like Greg doesn't, uh, Chris doesn't, rather. Um, I know some history. Okay, well, the Great Smoky Mountains are located in this state. Oh, well, that would, that would lead me more down the Tennessee path. Although, Perfect, do, are those mountains in more than one state? That I don't know, but I know they are in the Tennessee. Yeah, when, sure. I, when I think of that, I think of Tennessee. So yeah, Right. Smoky Mountains, I always okay. think of Tennessee. Yeah. My next hint was it has no state income tax. And that would have narrowed it down even more. So now we know Andrew Jackson is Old Hickory on the $20 bill from Tennessee. We learned all kinds of things today. <laughs> See that? Yeah. You never know what you get on the Retirement IRA <laughs> yeah. show. All right. This is a very short email. You could answer this longly or shortly. I suggest you go with the shortly. Well, you could take a while to answer it if you'd like. Okay. Uh, It says, hello, Jim and Chris. Can you explain how delayed retirement credits after you reach your full retirement age are calculated? Is the 8% per year derived from yearly adjusted PIA, which is your primary insurance amount, folks, or essentially your benefit? at your full retirement age. And for most people listening, that's going to be somewhere between 66 and 67. On the other hand, cost of living adjustments are compounded, correct? Thank you for all your help. Love the podcast. George from the great state where old Hickory once lived. Well, it sounds like to me he's wondering if they apply the delayed retirement credits before the COLA or after the COLA. And it turns out, mathematically, it doesn't matter. It's the same. The only difference is he did nail one issue with one, one, one thing to know uh, with his question. The cost of living adjustments, which vary every year, right? They announce them each October, apply them January. You don't know what they're going to be until October, although we have, we have access to the data leading up to it. So most people are pretty good at predicting it by the time we get to October. But those vary. Those are, those are compounded. So the growth from the previous year, the growth from upcoming years applies on top of the previous growth. That's the concept of compounding. Uh, delayed retirement credits are simple interest or simple growth calculations. In other words, if they owe you your you know, as you delay claiming past full retirement age, they're going to pay you 8% per year is how we usually talk about it. But in fact, it's two thirds of a percent per month, uh, every month, which is 8% per year. Um, that is not compounded. So when we, 
if you were to delay four years, if your full retirement age was 66 and you waited to 70, it's just a total 32% increase. It's not 8% compounded on top of itself for four years, which would give you the effective growth bigger than 32%. That's not how delayed retirement credits work. So um, what they do is they know your raw PIA is what I call it. They don't usually call it that, but I like to make a distinction between that PIA, your primary insurance amount, and then any cost of living adjustments that you're eligible to receive. They apply those to get your adjusted PIA, and then they figure out how many months past your full retirement age that you are claiming, and then they add that percent to the adjusted PIA. So that's the formula, but it turns out whether they adjust the raw PIA by your delayed retirement credits and then apply the compounded cost of living adjustments, COLAs, or they do the COLAs first, adjusting your PIA, and then you get the delayed retirement credits, you end up with exactly the same dollar amount. So their methodology really isn't important. The only thing to know is COLAs compounded, delayed retirement credits not compounded. So that was as, that was as tight as I could keep that question, answer, and... Uh, keep it factually correct perfect i think you did an excellent job thank you all right Alrighty. well being in honor of national annuity awareness month we will get into annuity questions now i've got quite a quite a few old ones and new ones and i don't think i'll get to all of them before the series ends in another couple weeks but we may continue to answer some annuity questions until I can wrap them all up, kind of like we do with a Social Security question every show. Maybe I'll do an annuity question every show until I can get everyone's in. <clears throat> but I've thought back and forth if I was going to address this, and I think I will because we have received several emails on it. So this is an IRA question first. Mm-hmm. There's another podcast out there, Chris, and I, I didn't run this by you uh, at all, so you may not know anything about this. Um, from a host that you and I... I don't know. You may have met him. I never have met him. Uh, I greatly respect him. Uh, I don't consider for a minute that his simple mistake uh, is any reflection of of his amazing uh, financial abilities and the success that he has achieved. But he did uh, hit one down the gutter for sure on a question that he answered last week. Did this happen to have to do with the five-year rule on Roths? Yes, yes. Yeah, I've I actually <clears throat> saw his his fix to that. Uh came across okay. my feed, so I know exactly who you're talking about and it was a simple mistake on his part that he has now yep. corrected. And in defense of him, after mm-hmm. he answered the question, he freely said to everyone, he doesn't know this stuff. That's not his forte. And he actually named two industry people, one of which I'm I'm fairly good friends with and the other I I've met several times. Um, And he said, I have staff who looked this answer up for me. So I'm sure he is correcting his staff. (laughs) But he freely admitted, Chris, this is beyond, this isn't what I do. I don't know this part. I have people who looked this answer up for me. If you listen to the podcast, I don't listen to his podcast, and I'm not going to name him or the podcast because he's not here. But as I said, Chris and I both greatly respect him. And Chris and I muff up all the time. I joke about it, and so do he. It's self-deprecating, Jesus, not that, self-deprecating humor. Um, (laughs) There there we go, folks. So there's, there's, see, we mess up. 
but um, now I lost my train of thought with that one. But we, we can laugh. Stop laughing. Now, anyone can make that mistake. Anyone, you know me. I have a dead spot in my head. You know that. So we, we laugh at ourselves when we make a mistake and we'll keep going like I'm trying to here. And I just want to clear the year because I don't need anyone else emailing me. And I want to make sure people understand the real rule. So this gentleman on his podcast got a question and I'm, someone actually sent me the entire, um, they, I don't think they did it, but um, they sent me the entire, uh, what do you call it when someone puts into words what you were oh, saying? The transcript. Transcript. Mm-hmm. The entire transcript. But I listened to the podcast. So many people mm-hmm. sent me the links, so I finally listened to it. But in short, someone who was 67 years old, he wrote, I am 67 and will be 68 soon. And if I do a conversion, say, of $20,000 this year, and I pay the tax on the conversion, am I able to withdraw those funds and any growth before the five, year, before the five years is up without any penalty? He also shared, and I don't want to read, get too deep into the entire question, that he had been participating in Roth IRAs for 10 years. So he's 67, soon to be 68. If he did a $20,000 conversion this year, could he take out the conversion and could he take out any growth associated with the conversion essentially at any time without having to worry about the five-year rules or I guess paying taxes or penalties? So the answer provided on the podcast was, was just wrong. And I want to set the record straight again, because people were questioning us with the information that we gave on our podcasts. There are two five-year rules for Roths. Let's take the, the first one. The first is to do a qualified withdrawal. Qualified withdrawal is simply, how do you get the growth in your Roth IRA out without having to pay any taxes on it. right? Because remember, folks, money that you directly deposit, not convert, but contribute to a Roth can come out at any time, any reason, no taxes, no penalties. How do you get the growth out? The growth must be qualified. And to be qualified, there's just a two-prong test. It's like one of those barbecue forks, folks. Those two-prong barbecue forks. You need both prongs for it to work, for the fork to work and for a qualified withdrawal to work. Prong one, you have a Roth that's five years old. Chris, explain to people how damn easy it is to have a five-year-old Roth. You simply have to have opened a Roth at some point, five within, you know, more than five calendar years ago. Uh, And so you can technically, when you open a Roth, they assume you've had it open since January 1. So you actually get some free months thrown in there when they're doing this calculation. But it's quite easy. It doesn't have to be the Roth even you're currently dealing with, nor do you have to keep money in the Roth or maintain the Roth, or contribute to the Roth over the five-year period, you simply have to have opened a Roth to start the five-year clock. 
once then you reach that fifth calendar year that that Roth has been open, you have satisfied this initial prong uh, five-year rule. And you can actually have a five-year-old Roth in three years and two days. You might be saying, huh? Yep. Follow the math, folks. Here's how it works. It's 2023. Say you open your first Roth ever. December 31st, 2023. I have no idea if that's a business day or not, but let's just pretend it is. December 31st, 2023, you open up a Roth. Your Roth is already one year old, even though you have less than a day left in 2023. You just got one year. Then year two, three, and four, full years. Year five, January 1st. You now have a five-year-old Roth, even though it's three years and two days old. Yeah, so the most it'll take you is five years, but is likely less. Correct. And as Chris said, you don't even have to put money in. You just have to open it. Now, very few, I don't know of any custodians right. that allow you to open an account and not put any money in, but you can find some custodians with as little as 25 bucks. Yep. Some are 100 or 500 It's just real easy to open up a Roth. But let's get back to this question because I don't want to spend too much time on it. The guy admitted in his first email he's been doing this for 10 years since he was 67, uh, 57, because he's 67 now. So prong one of my two-prong test, five years. Prong two, you are over 59 and a half or dead or disabled or buying a first-time home. And if buying a first-time home, you are limited to taking out no more than $10,000 of growth as a qualified withdrawal. So being dead and disabled doesn't apply here. He's not buying a first-time home. And he was 67, so he was clearly over the age of 59 and a half. So he has already satisfied the ability to do a qualified withdrawal from his Roth So that five-year rule no longer applies to him. He has a 10-year-old Roth. That is gone. The second one, which confuses so many people and clearly confused the staff of this very qualified podcast host because they gave him the wrong information. And that is the five years that you have to wait when making a Roth conversion to take that converted money out and avoid the 10% early withdrawal penalty. However, that 10% early withdrawal penalty only applies until you are 59 and a half. This guy was 67. So what, just think, don't overthink this, folks. So that... Just... Go ahead. If that, you were to say, I was yeah, going to explain that five-year rule the- just has no effect now because there is no penalty to waive. The penalty's gone at fifty-nine and a half for early withdrawal. Exactly. And why did the Congress write this? They're idiots, Congress, but they got this one right. They knew people would abuse this. People younger than fifty-nine and a half, who the ten percent penalty refers to, and what they wanted to avoid was someone saying, "Hey." I want to buy a new car. I got to put $10,000 down. I'm going to take the money out of my IRA and I'm only 35. If a 35-year-old takes $10,000 out of their IRA, they have to pay taxes on it, but also a 10% penalty or a thousand bucks in addition to the taxes 
for taking the money out of their IRA uh, and not using it essentially for retirement. However, Roth money can come out at any time, any reason, no taxes, no penalties on money you put in. So Congress wanted to avoid someone saying, oh, wait a minute. I will convert this $10,000 into a Roth. I'm still going to have to pay the same amount of taxes. It's not going to save me any taxes. But because the money I put in can come out at any time for any reason, no taxes, no penalties, I'll then take it out of my Roth and avoid the 10% early withdrawal penalty. And I'll save $1,000 in my example. Well, Congress was on to that game. So they said, hey, in the case of a conversion only, if you convert and you're younger than 59 and a half, you cannot take those converted dollars out until you waited five years. So they were trying to prevent someone from doing a spur of the moment thing. Like my example, a 35-year-old wanting to buy a car and needing a $10,000 down payment. And they made you wait five years. But this guy was 67. The early withdrawal penalty goes away. That five-year rule goes away. This guy had no five-year rules applying to him. He could convert on Monday. And let's just say on Tuesday, whatever he bought with it doubled. It's never going to happen, but follow the logic here, folks. Doubled. And on Wednesday, he could take out the converted amount and the growth 100% tax-free. So anyways, I wanted to clear the air on that. Thank you, everyone, for listening to my podcast and the other gentleman's podcast. Um, don't have to email me anymore. I got this and, and everything is set. And the, the other podcast host corrected himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I said, he right after the answer, he just went on to say, I had someone look this up for me. This is not my area of specialty. So he was kind of covering himself there and and good for him. Okay, anyways, enough of that. All righty. There's one I want to get to because I know you are going to be able to help this person, not necessarily help, but explain what's happening. Okay, so this one came in uh, June 5th. Begins, oh, did he give a hint? No hint. Oh, wait, no, he did give a hint. Hmm. Hope it's easy. Easier no, than always ac- agree. Uh, yeah, um, actually, this one, folks, we do not vet these questions. But this one, Chris, if it's true, it really did make me go, wow. Hmm. Uh, he put the, the answer so I didn't have to Google it. But it just seems impossible. But anyways, he said, my name is George, in quotation marks. My name is George, and I live in the state. Oh, wait a minute. And the state I live in, excuse me, and the state I live in is one that has more subway stations than the next five states combined. What? There's one state that has more, more subway than stations. five, the next five combined? I didn't vet this question. 
But that doesn't that have to be New York? It, I I was thinking California, but you are right, New York. I I just think quantity of stations. There's a ton there, and I don't know who else would compete. What I'm shocked about is it takes. They've got more than the next five combined is the shocking part. Because that's got to pull in Illinois because of Chicago. Um, California with all of the Does California even have subways, though? I, I started wondering so. because of the – they're prone for um, – No, I don't think California has subways. But, um, but then you have Massachusetts the Coast, yeah. with Boston's uh, mm-hmm. excessive system. So anyways, mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, I did not guess this one, huh. but Okay. That is, so, yeah, that is a wow. Learned another great thing, if it's true, on the <laughs> retirement ratio. All righty. Here's this question. My parents are nearing retirement, and I sat down with them, with them and a financial planner recently. Both my parents worked in school systems, so 85% of their money is in pre-tax, TIA, and CREF, 403B accounts. They have saved four and a half million in these accounts. The planner got on the phone together with them and called TIA. And it turns out that all their money is in special annuity contracts and they can't take it out. TIA only gives them two options. Annuitize the entire $4.5 million or start a 10-year withdrawal program. And then he put in parentheses where they will get crushed in taxes as the entire money will come out in 10 years. Before you get to that, Chris, I'm going to add some clarity on that one. Mm-hmm. This just seems wrong to me. They can't take out only a one-time withdrawal of $500,000 to buy their condo in Florida. They have to either annuitize or start an irrevocable 10-year process. Is this why annuities get such a bad rap? Maybe Chris, who works in the education field, can opine on the options they may have. Well, before Chris gets into some of this, what these people are facing is real. And I am not a huge fan of TIA. I'm torn on TIA. Very strong, highly rated, well-funded insurance company that, in my opinion, has some very, very bad products. But they also don't go to great lengths disclosing to people what this person is running into. Your parents, listener, like it or not, were fully disclosed everything that they just found out. But they probably were not fully disclosed all that to their face by the TIA rep who helped put them in it. But in all the documents that I have seen, the the documents on these accounts, it is in there on what your distribution rules are. They most likely purchased it because it had higher interest rates than their other options that had far more liquidity, but their interest rates were not as high. I have seen this. 
everyone in this industry, if you're an advisor, you have ran into these accounts. One thing I want to clarify, your parents do not have to take the 10% out as a withdrawal and get crushed in taxes, as you said. TIA will move it to an IRA, also held at TIA, where they will put it in another account. It will not have as much interest bearing capabilities of this particular annuity, but it will be liquid. But here's an issue with what TIA does there. You never tell us the age of your parents. If they are younger than 65, this may not be an issue for them. If they're older than 65, it might become an issue for them. Now, Ed Slot has been complaining about this product from TIA for years. I have not heard him complain, gosh, over the last two or three years. So maybe TIA finally cleared this up from their own admission. They just said, we, our software can't do this. And what Ed's issue was, and we just spent a lot of time going over this, when you reach the age for required minimum distributions, and that's why I said 65 folks, because these people have to take 10% out a year for 10 years. So when you reach your required Beginning, excuse me, when you reach the age where you're going to be required to begin taking RMDs and now it's 75, the first dollars out are always your RMD. And we spent many days trying to clear this all up for people. If you move from an IRA to an IRA, direct trustee to trustee transfer, you do not have to take your RMD first even if you're over the age of 75 and subject to RMDs. But if you move from an employer account, whether it's a 403B, a 401A, a 457, a 401K, when you move from an employer account to an IRA, you must take the RMD first. Or if you move it into an IRA, it's going to be considered an excess contribution. You must take the RMD first. When TIA in the past set these up, their software would just automatically transfer 10% of the account balance into an IRA at TIA and never took the RMD first. And Ed complained to them as well as other advisors and professionals and clients that you can't do this. And I don't know if they cleared up their software or not to first send the RMD out before moving the money or not. So it's just something to keep in mind if you are doing this. You are technically doing it wrong if you are over the age of RMDs. Everybody's got different ages now, 70 and a half, 72, 73, and soon well, not soon, but in another nine years, 75. So that's all I'm going to say on it. Chris will also chime in. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate your parents are in this. Does, is this what gives annuities bad rap? Yes. And it's not that Tia didn't disclose it to your parents. They did. It's just nobody reads the disclosure documents when opening an annuity contract. I think it's disingenuous that they don't put clearly, 
even in the quarterly or annual statements, just send an annual letter to everyone. Hey, you're in this unique annuity. Just so you know, remember when it comes time to taking your money out, you have to annuitize it or take it out over 10 years. You have no liquidity in this and we're not going to make any exceptions. And we just want to let you know now before you put too much money into it. That's all they have to do. But they don't. Why? Probably because they want the money. So yeah, it does piss me off that a really good insurance company does these stupid, I don't want to say unethical, but not nice things. Just be transparent. Just tell people what in the hell it is they're buying. Don't disclose it to them in a disclosure document written in legal ease that no one can possibly read through. I do because I know what to look for. But I'm often when I read these things, I'm appalled at how they explain it and where they put it. Now, maybe they've changed since your mom and dad opened these accounts many, many years to amass four and a half million. They opened these a long time ago. And maybe Tia did clear up their act. And maybe they clearly disclosed to people before buying this product or putting money in it that they're not going to be able to get it out. Don't put too much money into it. Think things through. Make sure you have liquidity. But yes, listener, this is what gives annuities a bad name. And this is why I'm trying to teach people about annuities. Teach what's good about them and teach what's questionable, if not unethical and bad about them. Okay, Chris, your turn. Okay. So yes, a lot of people, there's a lot of teachers out there, a lot of people that participate with uh, the Teachers Insurance uh, Annuity Association, I think is what TIAA stands for. It's right in the name. It's... uh, it's an insurance company, so they're providing these annuity options uh, within these plans. The one thing I will point out, um, what is typically seen with the choices they're being given is in um, within these different accounts, there's a particular annuity called the TIAA Traditional that usually has the characteristics that this listener is writing in about. But I will point out that depending on the specific account that they have those in, it could actually be fully liquid. So just because you have TIAA traditional does not mean that you cannot roll it out. If you if you don't want anything with the, that the annuity company is offering, you want to roll it out into an IRA to do with as you please. There are accounts where that is the case, that they are fully liquid. So you won't want to double check that. I suspect with that much money, that is not all piled up in just the basic retirement plan account, which likely only has these restrictive rules. The supplemental. But I will say, Chris, mm-hmm. Chris, he he did say he was sitting in the meeting, mm-hmm. and the financial advisor got a rep of TIA on the phone and confirmed all that. Um, so I just wanted to state that again. I don't dispute anything you're saying. Mm-hmm. We've seen that. There's a couple of different types. As Chris said, and you got to make sure you have the right one. I'm assuming the phone rep would have told them if some of that money was liquid. Uh, 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 I would only assume that if the right question was asked. And since we don't know what questions were asked, I don't know. So there are what are called supplemental retirement 
accounts that are allow you to put in more beyond the basic account. And you, and a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times those supplemental accounts have more flexibility and actually have liquidity, even if you choose to invest or, or put the money in the TIAA traditional option inside of that account. So just be aware, if you've got one of these, you've got a lot of homework to do. Just I'll put it out there. I'm not going to be able to explain it all ever on this show for you to know enough not to do your own research and investigation. And getting on the phone with the rep is a great way of doing it. You just need to know the right questions to ask. You need to be asking, when can I get this? Are there restrictions on what I can do in this account? What are the rules in this account? Are the rules the same? Are they different? Those kinds of questions, and you'll get your answers. I don't think they're trying to be misleading, but these these products, I think, are misunderstood by the people participating in them because they weren't, um, I guess, it wasn't as much up front with them as it should have been to educate them before they uh, put their money in it. Because clearly, it sounds like to me, the reason why this, this person wrote in is there's regrets. There's regrets that they've got all this money and now they want to, they have plenty of money, they want to take $500,000 out. And lo and behold, they don't have the liquidity or flexibility to just go do that. So there are um, typically options in there, you've got the ability to bring it out of there, but they're going to slow pay you essentially by making you take it out over 10 years. If you choose that option, if you're not going to annuitize it, there are lifetime annuity options in there. There are fixed period annuitized options in there, usually between five and 30 years. So you don't have to necessarily take a lifetime option. And it's not an all or nothing. Just because you have a whole bunch of money in one account, that doesn't mean you have to make an, a, 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 a give me the 10 year or give me the uh, lifetime annuity or all, all for the whole balance. You can choose how much of each you want to do and they'll set that up for you. So it is restrictive for sure. It's not the same as having your money in an account that you can move wherever you want, take out whenever you want. Um, that is not what they put their money into. They put their money into annuitization or annuity contracts that have restrictions. And ultimately where they're, you know, most popular is for those people who want a certain level of secure lifetime income and they end up annuitizing part or all sometimes of that account. But, uh, yeah, you need to do your homework on this. And if your parents have these, make sure they figure out the rules and figure them out before they need to take money out. Because it's not when you're shopping for a house and then suddenly realize that you can't just take the money out to pay for it. That's not the time to learn about the rules on, on your 403B. Um, I'd, I'd do some research ahead of time. That's the one advice I would hope people would take from me. Now, one thing I do want to make mention of, because mm -hmm. this gentleman was living, and I don't want the parents to lose their ability to get a home, a condo in Florida, especially mm -hmm. if they want to be snowbirds like mm -hmm. I want to be someday, and they need half a million. If you don't have the, the other uh, types of traditional that Chris is describing, if the first phone rep was correct, all four and a half million is going to either have to be annuitized into a lifetime stream of income. And remember, folks, annuitization means these people give up access to the four and a half million. And instead, TIA will give them an income stream for the rest of their lives. I can't conceivably see why anyone would want to annuitize four and a half million. Or they take 10% out a year and TIA will move that automatically to an IRA. 
even if you did your parents listener didn't have this annuity if they took half a million dollars mm-hmm. out of a retirement account in one year it would be a massive amount of taxes right. and i would encourage them not to i would encourage them to take a little out a year for a even a hundred thousand for five years or mm-hmm. two hundred fifty thousand for two years or whatever or at this point take out half this year and half in another six months and break the taxation over two years. Where am I going with this? Tia is willing to move $450,000 a year into an IRA for your parents. They could then just do a distribution from that IRA. If but, they they're were still a client, be, but, but they'll still be the big tax ramifications, like you mentioned. But they were going to have that anyways. Correct. Mm-hmm. So you said your parents want half a million. And they can't take a discretionary one-time half a million dollar distribution, the phone rep said. But if they turn on this 10%, which I think they're going to have to, they got to start getting that money into an IRA. So they should be turning this on, moving it to an IRA. They do not have to close it. Hopefully, the phone rep or the financial advisor weren't communicating correctly and misunderstood each other like Chris is hoping. And it might mean getting on the phone and talking to another rep. But if the first rep was fine, I was correct. Someone made a mistake. You and your interpretation, the advisor or the phone rep. This does not have to come out as a distribution. It can be moved to an IRA. So have your parents start doing that now. Even as they're trying to clear the air, just get the damn 10-year clock started. But what I'm also trying to tell you, if a client of us came to us and says, Jim, send us half a million dollars from our IRA. We want to go buy a condo in Florida. We would. I mean, you all know we have a capped fee structure, so it doesn't matter to me if we have money or no. We get paid the same amount. doesn't matter to me. So it gives us the ability to give this type of unbiased advice to a lot of advisors watching half a million dollars go out the door into a condo. If they're charging 1% on it, they might have a reason why they don't want to see $5,000 of revenue walking out the door. We don't have that, but we would still pause our client before sending that money out and saying, whoa, Let's look at this from a tax perspective, though. Is there a way we can spread this out and keep more of that half a million? If your parents need net half a million, they might have to take out six hundred fifty-seven, seven hundred fifty thousand to net half a million. Let's look at taxes. That's all I'm saying. Is you might want to look at taxes here, and your parents stop moving the four hundred fifty thousand a year into an IRA. Start debiting from that IRA some of the money to put down uh, on the condo. Uh, There's many ways to come up with liquidity. I don't want to get into on this show that your parents might be able to come up with some of this money short term to buy their condo in Florida and then replace it with much more tax optimized withdrawals rather than taking the full half a million up front. So I just wanted to clear the air on that, Chris. Yeah, the but just they still they, get it. Yeah, they need to make sure they have understood their choices, though. 
because what you're saying will lock them into getting it all out in 10 years. And if they wanted to have part of that annuitized, they will need to strategize around that. So if, if, if their goal is to get everything out, their really only option is to start taking it out, you know, as fast as they'll let you take it out. But I don't, I don't remember him saying that was absolutely the goal. Correct. So, so, so make sure yes, you don't. consider your annuitized options first, because as far as lifetime annuities go, what TIAA offers, especially long-time participants, honestly, is very competitive for, for a lifetime income stream. They have some unique crediting features for long-time participants that is hard for other annuities to compete with. So if you do want lifetime income for a portion of that $4.5 million, make sure you you know get that arranged. You don't make a decision that undermines your ability to do that part of it. So... Again, you need to do some investigation and truly understand your options before pulling the trigger on anything. Absolutely. We won't dispute that if your parents need lifetime income. He didn't indicate they wanted some, but definitely if they need it, uh, the TIA, and I led with TIA is a very well-capitalized, strong insurance company. I just disagree passionately with this product or at least how the product is conveyed to people. It's what you're experiencing, listener, with your parents. Chris and I have experience with countless clients. They're shocked when they find this out. And it just tells me they weren't adequately disclosed everything. Legally, they were disclosed everything, and they didn't read it. And even if they read it, they might not have understood it. And that is what frustrates me. The, the TIA rep, and maybe they've changed, but I'm talking years ago, should have been much more upfront on the restrictions on getting money out. That's all. Yep. So let's look at the total opposite with this question. This total opposite from the sense, folks, TIA is a highly rated, strongly capitalized, well-managed insurance company. I personally wouldn't lose sleep with a client getting a lifetime stream of income from TIA. I will give credence where credence is due. And I give TIA faith uh, credit on that. They're a well-managed, well-capitalized insurance company. Because remember, folks, Whenever you're talking about annuities, any of the promises made are based solely on the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. You've seen that or heard that disclosure read time and time and time again. Now, there are guarantee funds managed by all 50 states Why do all 50 states have guarantee funds to back annuities? Because insurance companies are not regulated by the federal government. They're regulated by each individual state. So insurance companies have to deal with 50 different regulators. It's a nightmare for insurance companies if they want to sell insurance in all 50 states. So there is a guarantee fund that will provide some protection. But when you're talking lifetime, you want to make sure that this insurance company never gets to the point where the guarantee fund, where state regulators are stepping in 
and taking over the companies in insolvency. You don't want to deal with that. Also, what I'm saying is with a company like TIA, I would feel more comfortable than a company in this next question. And I've thought, Chris, back and forth if I was going to name the company. And I'm not. I could because it's an insurance company. It's not an investment product. But I don't want to. And I don't want to because I don't want to cause people to start panicking, perhaps unnecessarily. But the company that this man talks about, I have, I don't like. I, I, I just don't. And let me read his email and you'll start to understand what's, what's going on. Okay. So he says, hi, Jim and Chris. I never miss a podcast. Thank you. It's very helpful. Um, oh, he gives you a bunch of hints. I have hmm. no idea what state this is. I've literally just read this part. Okay, interesting. I did not know all this. Okay, my state, here's his hints, has just one natural lake. Do you want to try to guess or you want me to keep reading more hints? Do I, how about if I guess each time and when I get it right, then one <laughs> natural lake, Nevada. One natural lake. Nevada. Negative. Okay. Negative. It was formed in 1812. He's talking oh. about the natural lake. It was formed in 1812 by the largest earthquake oh. in American history that occurred east of the Rockies. Yeah, that was Oregon? East of the Rockies. Oh, what? Sorry. East of the Rockies. Oregon is I west thought, of the I Rockies. I know that. I, was, I had jumped to Oregon first because I guess uh, that's, that's a more recent earthquake. Earthquake Lake up there is either in Oregon or Washington. So east of the Rockies, formed in 1812. Hmm, one natural lake east of the Rockies. And huh. a natural lake was formed in 1812 due to a massive earthquake. I am a history buff. Maine? No. That's way east of the Rockies, and there's more than one natural lake in it. Have you ever been to Maine? It's Mosquito City. My God. Kansas? Tennessee. Oh. You couldn't just give me Smoky Mountains or Old Hickory? (laughs) (laughs) Little history on this earthquake. He names it. How can there only be one natural lake in Tennessee? I don't vet these questions, but... The New Madrid earthquake, which happened in 1811 and 1812, kind of led in a very roundabout way to the War of 1812. Because I just read two fascinating, because you know I want to move to the Ohio River Valley. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I'm a history buff and I only read history. Right now I'm reading Dark Tide, the history of the Boston uh, molasses flood. F- fascinating book, and I'll share more on that later. But uh, I recently read a uh, biography of Tecumseh, the Shawnee chief, and also another book called um, The Frontiersman about uh, Simon Kenton and the settlement of Kentucky and Ohio. Fascinating, fascinating man, fascinating read. 
But this earthquake, back when Tecumseh was trying to group all the Indians, remember, Ohio at the time was the frontier folks. That was it. If you go west, young man, go west, what Horace Greeley said and drove people out to Colorado. Greeley, Colorado is named after Horace Greeley. Uh, Go west, young man, go west. What meant going through the Cumberland Gap and going into Kentucky and Ohio. That was west. Anyways, the Indians of that area, all the nations there, would, Tecumseh was trying to unite them to push the white men, the Americans, as they were called, back out. The British, uh, who still controlled Detroit and points north into Canada, uh, were very friendly with the, the Indians in a less than... Uh, what's the way? It, just, just in a very questionable manner in the sense... They were friendly to the Indians because they were trying to turn the Indians against the Americans. So Tecumseh had told the Indians, he had no idea this earthquake was coming, that their god, and I forget what their god's name was, I had given him the ability and there will be a sign. There will be a sign from the god that now is the time to unite and fight. And this earthquake was felt all the way. I mean, it was massive. And there's just reports from all over that this earthquake was felt. Today, I can't even imagine what this earthquake would have done with the amount of development and everything in in the East. But Indians from all over felt it. And it went on for days. And then, you know, there was the aftershock again in 1812. And that was the sign, and the Indians believed in what Tecumseh was saying, and they united, albeit not for very long, uh, and they joined the British, who joined the fight, and the War of 1812 started, and the Indians were on the side of the British, and you can trace it back to this massive earthquake. I didn't know it created a lake, but it gives you the idea of how massive this earthquake was, Chris, back then. I never knew about it until I read the Tecumseh biography. If you're a history buff, get a good uh, biography on Tecumseh. Fascinating, fascinating man. Um, Spoke English and uh, would speak his heart out to the Americans and hated, hated the white men. He didn't hide that, but tried to to do peace with them. And when not, he, he fought them and um, I don't know how true this part is, but on the day he died, he told everyone that he would die. Uh, and he did. I guess if you're in a battle and you want to die, you could easily make yourself die that day. But anyways, fascinating read if you want to learn more about that earthquake. Okay, so here's the question. And it's kind of the opposite because I don't really have long-term faith in this company, even though this company may stay around for another 50 plus years. Who the hell knows? He says, my state, oh, wait, I already read that. I will be retiring soon from a large corporation. I'm not going to name the corporation either, folks. Either he did, I won't. I have a defined benefit plan and a 401k. As they retired before me, many of my colleagues have collected their pensions as a lump sum. I have been planning to take mine as an annuity leaving a survivorship to my wife. So again, folks, he has a defined benefit pension plan, 
which uh, if you if you remember, there used to be the three stool, Chris, for retirement security, mm-hmm. a company sponsored pension. And the company he works for is a massive company. Everyone has heard about it. It's been around in one iteration or another for over 100 years. So there would be a pension sponsored by a company, Social Security, and your own savings, the three-legged stool, and that was to make a secure and set retirement. But he is saying, hey, I was going to take my pension as an annuity. In other words, folks, a lifetime stream of income. We've often said Social Security and a corporate pension are both forms of annuities. So he was going to do it, even though his colleagues have been taking lump sums. He said, I wanted to do this because the annuity payment is more generous than what I could purchase on my own with the lump sum they're offering. We often see this, folks, because if you bought an annuity on your own, the income payments are based on current interest rates. Chris, if you have a pension, What are your income payments based on? Based on the formula that they use to calculate your benefit based on your earnings and your years of service and those types of factors. They're not, uh, it's not directly related to interest rates. Exactly. When I was a police officer back east, we had a pension. And if you stay on 15 years, you were vested in the pension and you couldn't take a lump sum anymore after 15 years. Uh, And then they had a scale. And you could say if you work 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, all the way up to 32, 32 is to get the biggest pension possible, uh, you will get X percent of your salary each year. Nowhere did it say as long as current interest rates are 3.2% or higher or something like that. Interest rates made no appearance in what we received as a pension benefit. Now, they may have played a big role in what the people managing the pension plan were investing in and things like that. But when you have a pension, you don't worry about that. The company sponsoring the pension or the pension plan trustees, they worry about that. They're the ones responsible for managing the assets. So he made a a very obvious observation. He can get a hell of a lot more money based on the formula of what his pension is worth than taking the lump sum and trying to buy an annuity stream because that is not going to be based on his salary. It's based on just interest rates, his gender, and his age. Or in the case of a joint survivor, which he wanted, his wife's gender and his wife's age. Okay, so he continues. Maybe my benefit is too generous. Because I have recently been told my company is selling off some pension annuities to an insurance company. Mm. Now, he names the insurance company. I will not. And he does make it clear it's only some. And he claims it's being done quietly. This is not anything they will do nefariously behind the scenes. They might do the negotiations with the insurance company behind the scenes, but they have to announce to everyone impacted that they sold their uh, pension and the obligations of it to an insurance company. 
So they can't do that behind your back, listener. Now, they can be negotiating behind your back, coming to agreements, and they can just sell it and you have no say in it. I'll concede all that. But do keep in mind, if you're hearing rumors that they might do this, that's different than if they've already sold some of the pension obligations. So what is he talking about, folks? Many companies, because managing a pension is not easy. It's why nobody offers them anymore. It's one of the reasons we like annuities, income annuities for a portion of your retirement. If it was easy to provide lifetime streams of income, pensions wouldn't sell their obligations. They would easily do it themselves. It's not easy. That's why 401ks exist. All the risk of managing an income stream have been passed on to you, not the company. Well, this pension plan is talking to insurance companies. This is very common. It's nothing nefarious. Companies do this all the time. They feel insurance companies are better positioned because of their experience with annuities to take on pension obligations, not us. But there's a couple of caveats with it as he continues. So he said, to selling off some pension annuities to an insurance company, which again, I won't name, but he does, that is owned by a private equity outfit. And he names the private equity company. That is correct. This particular insurance company is in fact owned by that private equity firm. In fact, over 130 U.S. insurance companies today are owned by private equity. I have spoken about that on this podcast in the past, and I have huge issues with private equity owning insurance companies because private equity exists for solely one reason and one reason only, and that is to make the owners of that private equity rich or at least profitable. They're not buying insurance companies because they're altruistic and they want to do wonderful things for the American people. They want to make money. And they love the fact that they can sell annuities. And this particular company he is questioning is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, providers of fixed indexed annuities. And they want those premiums and they want to be able to invest them They move the companies or subsidiaries offshore where they can use GAAP accounting instead of SAP accounting here in the United States for the insurance companies, which is a concept I'm just recently learning about and how GAAP accounting overseas, especially in Bermuda or the Cayman Islands, allow these private equity companies to goose with the books, so to speak. And I'm appalled at what's happening. And the people who are teaching me this are appalled at what's happening and trying to get the word out. So I do have a huge issue of annuities owned by private equity. Not necessarily if you're considering buying a two, three, four-year MIGA perhaps from them. I don't think these companies are going to run into issues right now. But when you are buying a lifetime stream of income, you have to hope that company's not around for the next two, three years. 
you have to hope that company is around for 10, 20, 30, 35 years, maybe more if you truly do have longevity, especially you have a joint and survivor annuity is like a 10 year age difference between the two of you. You're looking at 40 plus years. I don't know where these private equity insurance companies are going to be in 10 years, 15, 20, 25 years. You don't want to be dealing when you're 85, 90, 93, if you even could deal with it then, with an insurance company going insolvent that was paying you an annuity stream, and now the state is stepping in, trying to determine how much of state insurance protection you're entitled to, you're not going to be able to deal with that. When you buy an income annuity that's to last for your entire life, I only favor highly capitalized, preferably mutually owned insurance companies. But that's just me. I'll continue with his question because he points some things out and he's wondering if they're true. And sadly, they are. He says, this insurance company itself seems to have most of its assets tucked away offshore in Bermuda. Very astute. I'm glad you are actually looking this up. Apparently, when a corporate pension is sold to an insurance company, the federally backed pension insurance from the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation no longer applies Mm -hmm. and your pension benefit is only backed in the case of insolvency by whatever my state guarantee fund may provide, if anything. And he is key on that. Even though they call them the state guarantee funds that talk about an Orwellian name, they're not guaranteed. And the states tell you that. There is no money per se in the state guarantee funds. When an insurance company goes insolvent, very similar to what the feds did when banks started going insolvent and they claim no taxpayer money was used for the bailout, the Federal Reserve is burdening the other banks that participate in the FDIC insurance program with contributing more dollars into FDIC to bail out the banks. Or should I say to bail out everyone who shouldn't have been bailed out. And that's everybody with a quarter of a million dollars or more uh, in their individual accounts. They, They shouldn't have had the insurance. That's not what FDIC was created for and funded for. But the FDIC starts creating this moral hazard all the time by saying, ah, we're going to cover everybody. It doesn't matter, especially in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, where many of the people being bailed out were very, very rich, very, very powerful Silicon Valley uh, executives who just happened to contribute a hell of a lot of money to politicians. Imagine how that works, Chris. And all of a sudden they're being bailed out. Amazing how that happens. So where am I going with this? The FDIC collects their premiums from member banks. 
So when insurance companies go under, the states collect the money needed from all the insurance companies in those states that happen to sell the same line of insurance of the company that's going under. So that's how they get their money. And they tell you there's no guarantee, even though we call it the guarantee fund, that we'll be able to collect enough money to bail everyone out. And that's why their limits are relatively low, $300,000. And they don't have the ability, I don't think, to just uh, unilaterally waive that and say, we're going to cover everything. Because I don't even know if the insurance companies would have enough uh, assets to be able to contribute to do that. So he makes a couple of key points here, folks. You have to pay attention to the strength of the insurance companies that are backing your lifetime pension payments. And if your pension is sold out to an insurance company, you will lose the backing of the federal government who will make good on their promises because they print money. They can just create it out of thin air. States don't have that ability to do it. This particular insurance company is the number one seller of fixed indexed annuities in the nation. I guarantee you there's advisors right now listening who sell this insurance company's product. I have started following a group called the TSR Ratio. And that group is ran. I'm torn on this group, folks. There's Tom Gober is one of the members and founding He is a forensic uh, investigator who was actually involved uh, in a lot of the bank blow up in 08, testifying on behalf of the SEC and other regulators. Very well-respected forensic accountant. He created a ratio along with another gentleman they call the TSR ratio. And what they essentially are looking to do is dive into the books of the insurance companies, not look at what the rating agencies do. Remember in 08, a lot of the collateralized mortgage obligations that went under were given A ratings and A plus ratings by the ratings agencies. This particular insurance company that I am talking about, Apollo Group owned S&P as well. And S&P, before Apollo Group spun them out, just happened to raise the ratings of this insurance company to A. Actually, I think they even went up to A+. I could be wrong, but definitely to A, maybe even A+. And Tom Gober's point was, why? Have you looked at their books? What type of nefarious things are going on there? A private equity firm that owns an insurance company and a ratings agency just all of a sudden gave their insurance company a prime rating? I don't know. It looks a little nefarious to me. So be very careful just going by ratings, sadly. So TSR, I'm torn on them because at the same time that they're trying to come up with a way 
to look at the true books of these companies and look at the difference between gap accounting and SAP accounting and look at what overseas accounting rules are and U.S.-based accounting rules and look at reinsurance which is often owned by subsidiaries of the very same insurance company. So as Gober points out all the time, what type of true reinsurance are you getting if the insurance company is essentially selling their reinsurance to a company they own? It's amazing the amount of shenanigans that goes on I never knew about. And if you are an advisor, I would start joining this group and learning. But at the same time, they also push and offer exclusive annuities that they claim are from insurance companies with the best TSR ratios ever. And I don't like that. They should separate the two of them with a definite Chinese wall. Don't come up with a way to rate companies and then conveniently offer products from companies that you have conveniently rated really well. That bugs the hell out of me. And I'm just being honest. And if anyone from TSR is listening, that's a beef I have. I don't like it. You should put a Chinese wall between these two things that you are creating. And I give you huge credit on TSR. I question the pushing of annuities from other companies. That should be separate. But I have learned so much about private equity-owned insurance companies. And this particular company, listener who sent this email, has the worst TSR ratio out of all companies they follow. And what does the TSR ratio show? It's how much transparency, how much reinsurance that are being used, how much shenanigans is the best way of explaining it is going on. And the higher your TSR ratio, the more shenanigans and the more leveraged the insurance company and the less protection the insurance company has if some of their uh, assets were to blow up and drop in value. And that's what Tom's trying to do, the, the forensic accountant. He truly does believe in this. And he's just trying to let people know if you're buying lifetime income, Pay attention to the companies and just don't blindly go with what the ratings agencies are saying. And he hates this company that this guy's writing in about. And he actually got into a blank match with this, uh, beginning with the letter P, match with the CEO of this insurance company. Because the CEO was saying we have a $20 billion reserve. And Tom called him out in public and said that's BS and pointed out to him your annuities are owned by a subsidiary of your firm. And that subsidiary only has a $2 billion reserve according to your own federally filed books that, that he looks through. And he warned everyone. When a subsidiary of an insurance company goes under, the mother insurance company has no obligation to bail it out. The subsidiary stands alone. And the two of them got into a public pissing match, I'll just say the word, over that. And he's saying, you don't tout a $20 billion um, reserve when you don't really have it 
on the annuity side. And that was Tom's point. It's a $2 billion reserve, substantially smaller than 20. So I didn't know all this, Chris, until I started following these people for about a year. And I learned a little bit from them. I just wish they didn't also push annuities at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think they're losing credibility with me on that one. But it's teaching me so much about private equity and the games they play and why they move insurance companies overseas and reinsurance. A reinsurance company like Swiss Ray, one of the biggest, most well-capitalized reinsurance companies. Insurance companies often sell risk to other insurance companies who agree to take that risk on in exchange for premiums, obviously, so they can spread the risk out. And, and sh- strong reinsurance is good, but reinsurance by wholly owned subsidiaries or subsidiaries held overseas that if you track the web just comes back to being a, a pot of the mother company and you're not really getting reinsurance, that has been eye-opening to me. So his answer is, what should he do? I'm not telling you. I'm not your advisor. But you need to make a decision for yourself. You're faced with a difficult choice because even though Tom doesn't like the company you mentioned and has called out the CEO directly, it could stay in business 50, 60, 100 more years. Who knows? Or or it could blow up in the future. Who knows? And you might be given up a pension that you can't replicate in the private market. And if your company does sell to this company, you're between a rock and a hard place then. Because once you buy the pension, if they sell it later, you can't get a lump sum up. They don't give you a chance to back out. And you're going to lose your pension benefit guarantee corporation protections. He's between a rock and a hard place, Chris. This is obviously beyond the scope of my expertise as far as what ERISA rules would apply to protect people against this. I'm shocked that the ERISA I'm shocked that ERISA would lets allow this them to um, essentially move the, the annuity obligation off to another company that uh, introduces more risk to the participants, to the, res- to the beneficiaries of these annuities. Um, but that's, again, I haven't looked into it, nor I wouldn't claim to be any sort of expert in that field. I just don't know. But I'm surprised that ERISA, with all the protections baked in for plan participants, that's really what it's about. It's to protect the plan participants from the companies that prior to ERISA played all kinds of games with the pensions and left people holding the bag. Uh, that they are allowing activities that might create a lot more bag holding. <laughs> so um, hopefully it's not true. Hopefully they're going to re you know revisit this, maybe clamp down on this, or at least build something in effect so that there isn't this uh, uh, additional risk given to the plan participants. But I don't know. I don't know how that's going to turn out and how it's affecting people right now because that it does doesn't sound good. I I. I'm shocked as well on it. And um, it, I mean, it is what it is. So it's, it's tough for me to tell you what to do. Um, 
He did say in his email that he's got two and a half more years before he retires. So you do have some time to figure this out. I just would, uh, over that next two and a half years, see, I'm under the impression his pension hasn't been sold out yet, but it, it may in the future. And anyone listening, even if you aren't faced with what he's faced with. If you're going to be buying a lifetime stream of guaranteed income, especially if you're buying a fixed indexed annuity and you're being promised these income riders, which we're going to cover on next week's EDU show, do some research on the company. Ask the agent point blank. Is this company owned by private equity? Or is it owned by a company that owns a company that owns a company that is owned by private equity? Is 130 plus insurance companies now in the United States, the last time I, I saw it, owned by private equity? And I'm not trying to throw all private equity under the bus, but we all know why private equity firms exist. They don't come in and take over companies because they have this again, altruistic sense of of doing great to the American people. They want to make money. They often strip the companies. They often lay people off. And then they turn around and try to sell it and get out and make a profit. They want insurance companies, though, because they want access to the premiums. And they want subsidiaries to manage the money. They want to be able to do all these things. They hide behind, oh, we're regulated by the states. Yet behind the scenes, as Thomas pointed out, they're moving overseas. They're using different accounting gimmicks. It was eye-opening. And they're just trying to show um, the risks, especially the reinsurance risks when they use affiliated or opaque reinsurance companies and also how much of their reserves are invested in high-risk assets. It's what a lot of people don't look at is the high-risk assets that the government allows them to invest their reserves in, but they have to identify them as high-risk. And that's what the TSR ratio is trying to, to, to show. Uh, the R is for risk assets. And they're trying to show how much high-risk assets are on their books. Because if those drop, that's the issue you run into. And again, it's like golf. The higher the score, the worse in the TSR ratio. The higher the TSR ratio, in their opinion, the more orchestrated. I call it Frankenstein because it was created with body pots all over. The more, the more contrived the books in Tom Gober's opinion and it just throws up a huge red flag. And this particular insurance company has currently the highest TSR ratio of any insurance company they follow. Well, I'll have to wrap it. And I apologize to those of you who exercise during the show, because at this point, you have probably passed out. <laughs> um, but, well, yeah, or, so or maybe you want it every once on. in a while. You know, you need to push it a little farther than normal. And... Uh, We'll help you recover for next week's show. Hour and 38 minutes is where we're booking at it right now. Oh, that's so. not too bad. That's not too bad. <laughs> oh, your, you went long on your second, oh, so, your first uh-huh. social security that's, question. That's where, that's where we went awry. You it's even admitted you went wrong. Long. Long, but informative. 
Right. <laughs> and the whole show was long but informative. Who Plus else we learned knew all kind of her history. You know, this we was did. A, we did. The show bit was of loaded trivia. with all kinds of stuff. So This was definitely a Tennessee State day, too. <laughs> for sure. So we want to thank everybody for sending in your questions. Um, prompted you know quite a bit of discussion today. If you want to send in questions for a future show, just send them directly to Jim. His email is jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. Put in the subject line that it's a question for the podcast. The um, National Annuity Awareness Month is going to rapidly start coming to an end here shortly. So if you want to squeeze an annuity question in, now's the time to send it. Not that we wouldn't answer an annuity question some other time, but the focus this month is going to be uh, on annuities. And yeah, everybody stay safe and we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 